big news, because we had so much fun at our last live show, we're doing it again. That's right. We're going live again, but this time we're going to the Ripped Bodice in Brooklyn, which is an absolute dream come true of a location. This show is going to be part of a larger romance festival being put on by Fish Market Theater Company. And I'll give you details about all of the awesome events that they'll have going on that weekend soon. But for now, head on over to the ticket link in the show notes and get your tickets for our performance, which will be on March 9th at 7.15 p.m. Eastern Time. We don't have streaming set up quite yet, but we're working on it because we know a lot of you aren't in New York. But if you are or if you can get here, we hope that you'll get your tickets and come join us because it's going to be a blast. Hey, everyone. Before we begin today, we want to thank our newest patrons, Chelsea, Daniela, Magdalena, and Alana. Welcome to the team. If you want to be like them and get access to bonus content like our notes, outtakes, and more, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash pod and prejudice. And now enjoy this week's episode covering chapters 25 and 26 of Emma. I'm going to take a quick moment here just to text Mike to order the food because... Good plan. Yeah. I don't want it to be too late. Hang on. Can you order the food? Some shrimp. All right, we're good. Okay. Let's talk about Jane Austen. This is Becca. This is Molly. We are here to talk about Jane Austen. We are here specifically to talk about Emma. Listeners, if you're new here, I, Becca, have read many Jane Austen books in my life. And I, Molly, am reading Jane Austen for the first time vis-a-vis this podcast. If you would like to hear Molly read through Pride and Prejudice or Sense and Sensibility for the first time, that's seasons one and two of this podcast, respectively, but that is not what we're doing here today. No. Today we are talking about volume the second, chapters seven and eight of Emma, or if your book isn't broken up into volumes, that is chapters 25 and 26. Yes, that's correct. So to catch you up on where we were last time, we met a certain little genius billionaire playboy philanthropist, (laughs) (laughs) or some of those things, in Frank Churchill, a dashing, handsome young man who Emma is a little taken with um, and who we have questions about. Yeah, I don't trust him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, So yeah, Harriet's still pining for Mr. Elton, which is... Terrible, because she's great and he's trash. Mm-hmm. Um, and Mr. Knightley fucking hates Frank Churchill. He really hates him. And Emma fucking hates Jane Fairfax. She really hates her. And so what we have here are a bunch of petty rich people with very few problems kind of sniping at each other. Yeah, it's really just gossip and pettiness. And Emma. And Emma. I saw something. I was going to bring this up later, but people keep sending it to us. It's a tweet that's like, people say that The biggest problems in Jane Austen's books are in the title. So like Pride and Prejudice, the problems were Lizzie's pride and Darcy's prejudice or vice versa. Sense and sensibility? It's Eleanor's sense and Marianne's sensibility. And so that makes the biggest problem in Emma, Emma. (laughs) (laughs) It's me. Hi. I don't want to pay for this song. We're not going to pay for this song. (laughs) Um, So where we are now, starting with chapter seven. The next day, so after Emma meets Frank for the first time, Frank goes back to London to get, drumroll please, a haircut. Yes. This always gives off to me the vibes of Ryan in the office when he's like, they don't even want to know how much I paid for my haircut. (laughs) It was $200. (laughs) It's so funny because... For a man, I guess that's a lot. But when a woman goes to get her hair cut and colored, it can be up to like $400. It absolutely can. But the first of all, those are New York City prices. Totally. Second of all, even nowadays, a woman getting a haircut and just a haircut is not $200 no, usually. No, no. <laughs> just a haircut. My haircuts are usually, I don't know if this is exposing too much about my lifestyle, but my haircuts are usually around like, 80 to 90 dollars. I feel like that's standard New York City rate. Uh, if you are not coming to us from New York City, I'm so sorry. Don't come here. It's so expensive. Yeah. When I get my hair cut back home, it's like 45 dollars. Yeah. That's kind of the the spread in 
most of New York, at least. (laughs) Yeah. But in any event, another hair thing. So he goes to get his hair cut. (laughs) Okay, this is different, though, because no one's using the hair. Nobody's touching the hair and, like, smelling it and, like, keeping it on their body. Or pulling a Dominic Cooper and, like, weirdly kissing it and then going, shh. Yeah. (laughs) And also the person cutting his hair is being paid to do so. Yes. So... It says that he was seized by a sudden freak at breakfast and was like, I have to go get my hair cut, which I just like as like a way of saying like he freaked out, but he was seized by a freak. Emma cannot approve of his decision to go get his hair cut in London. She thinks it's foppery and nonsense and contradicts everything that she's learned about him so far that she thinks she's learned about him so far. Um, She says that in terms of moderation and rationality, this is the opposite of what she thought about him. Um, She thought he had an unselfish warmth of heart, and uh, she thinks that this contradicts that. And to me, it shows that he's kind of vain, like he doesn't trust anyone in Highbury with his hair. Absolutely. And it also shows he's like a certain level of a fancy boy. Like 16 miles in one day is a long way to travel in this time period. And he's only with his dad for like two weeks. And so he's choosing to basically spend a whole day to go to London just to get his hair cut and come back. When he could just not get his hair cut and it would be fine. Yeah. And isn't the Churchill's estate like in London or like near London? Enscombe. Enscombe. Is it is it outside of London or it, fe- it felt to me like he was just going back where he came from. Well, I mean, Frank as a young man around town does spend time in London. Remember, Leo DiCaprio, party boy days, the 90s. Right. So in this situation, like, it's not like he's somewhere like he's like, oh, like I'm in in Spain. I'm going to go to Barcelona. It's like, I'm just going to go to this place that I go all the time and get my haircut. Uh, I guess. I mean, he's from Yorkshire. But he has access to London all the time is what I'm saying. He can go to London. Like he yes. could have gone to London a couple days ago to get yeah. his haircut. This is like somebody who lives in, say, like Vermont and is like, I only trust the people in New York City with my hair. Right. Which, again, you heard the prices now, folks. You should not do. <laughs> yeah. And the, like you, you can get your haircut anywhere. I, I got a really great ha- haircut at a Supercuts in Syracuse. And that was one of my favorite haircuts. Yes. 20 bucks. Yes. Although d- sometimes if you let your mother cut your hair, you do. There, there's bad things happen. I'm not speaking <laughs> on my own behalf. I'm speaking on Mike's behalf. <laughs> anyway. Um, anyway, yes. So. Mr. Weston's very lighthearted and and joking about it. He's like, oh, yes, he's just such a coxcomb and doesn't seem to care. But Mrs. Weston, you can tell because she, like, doesn't want to talk about it. And she's like, oh, yes, well, young people will have their little whims. Like, you can tell that she's upset about it. Aside from this, Emma still really likes Frank. And she thinks that he has proven himself in every other way a good companion. And when she's spoken to him about the Churchills, he's very kind and he has respect for them, which she thinks is very proper. Emma thinks he is worthy of the honor of being in love with her, (laughs) which is perfect. She also says, like, he's lived up to that weird fantasy I built up in my head. (laughs) But then she's like, of course, it'd have to be unrequited because I don't want to get married. Yeah, that that comes up a lot in these chapters. She's like, hmm. I'm still not getting married. I have to throw in a little coldness to my address to him. She's like, oh, I have to be careful because he'll think I want to marry him when I, Emma Woodhouse, will not marry. She's like, I'm not going to marry, but if you want to be in love with me. That's totally fine. That's great. Chill. So Mr. Weston tells Emma that Frank really liked her and that she's made a good impression. And he thought she was beautiful and charming. And because of this, she doesn't want to judge him too harshly for the whole haircut thing. (laughs) (laughs) She might be willing to forgive him, but there is one person in the town who will never forgive him. The way this is written in the book is exquisite. Please read it. Yes. There was one person among his new acquaintance in Surrey, not so leniently disposed. In general, he was judged throughout the parishes of Donwell and Highbury with great candor. Liberal allowances were made for the little excesses of such a handsome young man, one who smiled so often and bowed so well. But there was one spirit among them not to be softened. From its power of censure by bows or smiles, Mr. Knightley. I think it's bows. Oh, he probably doesn't have bows in his hair. <laughs> bows or smiles. Nice. So, yeah, it's just like Mr. Knightley sitting there being like, fucking party boy, just piece of shit. <laughs> What's he doing over there? Knightley hates him. I know. It's so delicious. I love it. 
and we'll get to it later, but somebody later refers to Knightley as someone who's not easily irritated, which I thought was hilarious. But I know. <laughs> when I was typing up my notes, like when I read it the first time, I was like, I totally buy that. But then the second time I was writing my notes, I was like, not irritated by most things. Most is doing so much work there. Yes. So Knightley cannot forgive him. And when he finds out about the haircut, he's like, at first he doesn't say anything and then later he starts muttering to himself that Frank is exactly who he thought he was basically what you said stupid little party boy grumble 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 and Emma is gonna call him out for muttering about him but she's like you know what he's clearly just trying to make himself feel better I'm not gonna start anything with him so she does not so the Westons are visiting in the morning telling her about the haircut thing and she needs their opinion on something. And I really liked how this was written because it said that it was lucky they were there because Emma wanted advice. And what was even better, she wanted exactly the advice that they gave her <laughs> because Emma likes when she hears what she wants to hear. Oh, absolutely. This is the problem. The Coles, which I remember are Elton's friends, are a family of low origin. They made their money in trade, but recently they've gained more income and have built up their house. So now they are second only to Hartfield in terms of size of their home. Mm -hmm. Hashtag new money. New money. And they're throwing a party. And Emma assumed they wouldn't invite any of the best families, which would be the residents of Hartfield, Randalls, and Donwell, so Knightley and the Westons and herself. Because why would they deign to invite people above them? And she doesn't want them to think it's in their power to arrange the terms on which these families will meet with them because they should be inviting the Coles places and not the other way around. Mm -hmm. And Randalls and Donwell, however, do get invited, but nothing for Hartfield. So Emma's feeling a little butthurt. Yeah. And the idea is like, why don't they invite Emma and her father? Is it because they're invalids? Uh, who do not leave the house, uh, which we hear a little bit more about here as well. Mm -hmm. I just do not keep a lot of society. And then on the other hand, you have the idea that the Woodhouses are above the Knightleys and the Westons, so they're too high to be invited. Which is what Emma wants to think. Exactly. She's like, well, of course they wouldn't deign to invite me, but you know, I should have the power of refusal. I should be allowed to say no to their invitation. Like <laughs> They should have invited me. And then she's like, plus... Mr. Knightley's going and the Westons are going and Harriet's going to be there and now I have FOMO. She's like, now I kind of wish I was invited. Exactly. <laughs> Which is hilarious. Honestly, like, I don't think it was intentional, but the Coles played this so perfectly, the mind game here. So good. Uh, they refer she refers to it as being like left in solitary grandeur. Mm -hmm. Which I thought was like... <laughs> it's a good line from Jane Austen. A great line from Jane Austen. And I like thinking of Emma thinking of herself as being in grandeur but but yeah it is solitary grandeur it's I like, mean yeah the top of society is lonely yeah being at the top sucks yeah they, they wipe their tears with their money the other question is like do they maybe not like Emma <laughs> like maybe they didn't invite her because they don't want her there well I think you've learned this at this point in this story but basically like who you enjoy as a person is almost secondary to your class status. Yes. You you socialize with who it's proper for you to socialize with, not who you like. It's part of the like little bit of revolution and rebellion in the friendship between Harriet and Emma. Right. Yeah. And they just like each other. Right. So an invitation does come and she's immediately like, well, of course I'm going to say no. But then the Westons are like, well, are you sure? You're like, you should come. And she's like, okay. <laughs> She's like, well, they went off to went to all that trouble and they really kiss her ass. In they the really do. So they ordered a folding screen to put around her dad so that he wouldn't catch a cold, like catch a breeze at the party. They're like, we, we just wanted to wait to invite you until the folding screen came. <laughs> <laughs> but Emma doesn't even let her dad go to the party. Well, I think we are meant to take from this that Mr. Woodhouse would rather absolutely die than socialize. He has a whole monologue about it, about how, like, he cannot possibly imagine going out to dinner. He's in, he's like, Emma and I were early to bed people. And I was like, this resonates with me. I'm about to turn 30 and I've become like 80 in that time period. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, ah, yes. Instead of going out to dinner and grabbing drinks with people I like, I could come home and cook pasta and lie down. <laughs> yes. 
So that is what we're getting from Mr. Woodhouse. So I think Emma's more rescuing her father from having to leave the house, which she doesn't want to do. Yes. But she wants to go. She wants to go socialize. She does want to go socialize. And her dad, when she, so they like make this whole plan for how she's going to go to the party. She tells her dad that they'll get Miss Goddard or Miss, or Mrs. Goddard or Miss Bates to come and hang out with him. And he agrees to this. And he's like, I wish the Coles weren't having this party at night in the wintertime. It would be much better if they came and had lunch with us in the summer because uh, the the evening dew of a summer day is not something I would expose anyone to. But um, he basically is just like salty that it's happening now. But he says, you know, Mr. Knightley will be there and the Westons will be there. So you'll be in good hands. And he tells Emma that she's going to get tired and want to leave after tea, which I just think is funny because she wants to go. And he's like, yes, but you'll leave, you'll come home early. Like, of course, like you were saying. <laughs> well, he's projecting onto her because he's like, you you don't want to be out for a long time. And Emma's like, I mean, I'm 20 years old, so I, I want to well, be out for a while. <laughs> Emma's like, well, what if I'm not tired yet? And he's like, oh, but you will be tired. And then Mr. Weston's like, but that would be breaking up the party if Emma left early. And that would be offensive to the Coles. So there's like a whole page and a half that's just the Weston's convincing Mr. Woodhouse that Emma will be perfectly fine to be at the party until everybody else leaves. <laughs> right. And he finally is like, oh, yes, I wouldn't want to offend the Coles. Like, go to the party. And she's like, okay, don't wait up for me, though. My favorite part of this is he's like, ah, yes, you're right. It would be offensive to them. So maybe you will just have to stay until you're a little tired, maybe a little past that. Yeah. <laughs> she's like, I'll survive. Yeah. So she tells him not to wait up for her. And he's like, I'll not wait up for you if you promise that when you get home, if you're cold, you'll warm up. And if you're hungry, you'll have a snack. <laughs> and she's like, I can do that. And that's the end of that chapter. Hello, it's Molly from the future hopping in to tell you about a new season of one of my absolute favorite podcasts. Hot and Bothered, hosted by returning Pod and Prejudice guest Vanessa Zoltan, is a podcast that treats romance as sacred. You've probably all already heard of this podcast because in their fourth season, they covered Pride and Prejudice. And now Hot and Bothered is back with a season that is all about romantic films. The first 10 episodes of this new season follow Vanessa as she learns how to critically watch movies by looking closely at the classic 2003 rom-com How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. After 10 episodes, Vanessa will be joined by her co-host Hannah McGregor, a media studies scholar, author, and podcaster. And together, they'll look at romantic films from Casablanca to Love and Basketball to When Harry Met Sally. The show is already so fun after just listening to one episode, and I cannot wait to listen to the rest of the season. So subscribe to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts to jump into this new season that's all about romantic films or to enjoy their previous seasons about Pride and Prejudice, Jane Eyre, and a personal favorite, Twilight. Again, that's Hot and Bothered, and it can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Also, this August, Vanessa is leading a pilgrimage to Bath for a five-day trip dedicated to Northanger Abbey. Now, I don't know anything about Northanger Abbey, but even I want to go on this trip. Together, you and 20 other Austinites are delving into the story of Catherine Moreland while immersed in a gorgeous city that features heavily in Austin's life and writing, as you know. So if you enjoy contemplative hikes, immersion in a new city, time away from your regular life, and the chance to talk about Austin with fans from all over the world, which I know all of you do, then this trip is for you. So check out Common Ground Pilgrimages at readingandwalkingwith.com. To claim your spot on the Northanger Abbey trip, head to readingandwalkingwith.com slash northanger-abbey-2024. And now back to this episode. Which brings us to... Chapter eight, which I would refer to as a doozy. This one is a doozy. It's long and it's chaotic. Yes. So it's the day of the party. Frank returns and it says if he kept his father waiting for dinner, nobody lets Mr. Woodhouse know this because they want to make sure that he doesn't have any negative feelings towards Frank because the Westons are trying real hard to get Frank and Emma together. He seems totally unashamed of the whole haircut situation. And Emma thinks Quote, silly things cease to be silly when done by sensible people in an impudent way. And impudent means lacking respect. And I'm trying to figure out what her logic here is. She's saying if he were silly, he would either be really proud of himself for this haircut debacle or ashamed of himself for the haircut debacle. And he doesn't seem to have any feelings about it at all. So he's just like 
unaware. I think it's the the impudent is not saying he's like necessarily lacking respect. I think the idea is to him, he's just taking it in stride. And he's like, yes, I did get my hair cut in London today and it happened and we're moving on basically shamelessly. So it's not silly and it's not like he's not being hoity toity about it. He's just like, that's what happened. Exactly. So like the fact that it's matter of fact mm-hmm. and that he doesn't see the big deal with it and that he's not excited about it. He's not ashamed of it. It's just how he lives. Okay. And she's okay with that. She seems to be justifying that. It's an interesting question from Jane Austen because I'm not sure I agree with the idea that silly things cease to be silly when they're done by non-silly people. But I think it's kind of like, have you ever had the experience of someone doing something weird and they like do it with such a rationality that you kind of just take it in stride? Yeah. Yeah. It's like... um Someone who just does things with confidence makes you be like, oh, yeah, yeah, that wasn't a big deal when they did that thing, you know? Right. Like, I don't know why this is what I'm thinking of, but I, after I brush my teeth, I take my hand and I get some water and I use that and put it in my mouth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And to me, that's totally normal because that's how I was taught to brush my teeth. But I did. I brushed my teeth at my girlfriend's house with the door open and her and her roommate and his boyfriend were all in the living room and they all saw me do that. And they were like, what did you just do? And I was like, that's totally normal. And they were like, that's not how I brush my teeth. And they all like do something weird with their toothpaste after they brush their teeth. Wait, what? I do what you do. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) See, I think it's normal. You you cup your hands, you get a little water, you swish it around your mouth and you spit. That's like, I mean, I know some people take a cup of water. That's fine. What they do is they wet their toothbrush again and then suck the water off of the toothbrush. That is absolutely unhinged but this is a perfect example where you were made to feel like you were being the weird one yeah (laughs) actually mel and her roommate and his boyfriend are the weird ones here thank you i've now now i've converted mel and she does do a little rinse afterwards with her hand but yeah you either cup your hands under the water and take a little water and take a sip or you get a cup that's like your toothbrush cup and like you take some water in the cup and you take a sip and you spit. Like I know, but and also, okay, and then roommate's boyfriend has now informed me that you're not actually supposed to rinse your mouth after you brush your teeth because you're supposed to let the fluoride sit in your mouth, but I'm I need my coffee after I brush my teeth, so I don't know what you're talking about. Mike brushes his teeth after he drinks his coffee in the morning, which some I people think do is, that. Yeah. I mean, it helps with the stains and everything, yes. but the fluoride doesn't like leave your mouth permanently. Okay, listen. Listeners, we have you here for a reason. You're not only just in our entertainment audience. You are also how we crowdsource things generally. So let us know. Do you cup and like sip and spit? Do you leave the toothpaste in your mouth? Do you use a cup? Do you suck the water off of a <laughs> toothbrush like an insane person? I don't know how multiple people in the same household have this weird way of doing the thing, but they also did it so confidently that I was like, have I been living incorrectly all these years? But like now that you've told me, I feel a little bit better knowing I'm so not alone in that. Frank Churchill sucked the water off of his toothbrush in mm-hmm. front of Emma. And he was like, yeah, that's how you brush your teeth. And she was like, oh, OK, I guess that's how you brush your teeth. Right. Exactly. That's what happened. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> wow, that's not the story I thought was going to make it into the episode. <laughs> I'm reeling. I'm reeling. Yeah, it was. I've also seen Mike brush his teeth. He he actually has another one as well. He will sometimes like stick his head under the tap and take some water in and then like spit, like rinse and spit. Yes, that is. So that's the first time that this happened with the toothbrush thing. That's what they all said that they did. But then the second time they revealed that that's not what they always do. And they all know it's weird. (laughs) Mel, I'm so sorry. Love you to bits. But what the fuck? (laughs) Anyway, back to Jane Austen. Yes. So Frank does the weird toothbrush thing. Tuesday comes and it is the time of the party and Emma's excited to see Frank Churchill again. She is excited to get to talk to him for a more extended period of time and to gauge how soon it might be necessary for her to throw some coldness into her air. Basically, she's like, can't have him wanting to marry me. Do want him in love with me. It's also like, I need to not like being proper here society tells me i'm not supposed to like flirt too heavily with this man yeah becca did a cute little like hair thing while she said flirt <laughs> flirt too heavily with this man yeah Gra- <laughs> Graham, i know this is an audio medium i promise <laughs> so she can't get it out of her head that 
one of Mr. Elton's greatest failings was the fact that he was friends with the Coles because they were below him. But it's more the Coles that are at fault for being friends with Mr. Elton because he sucks. Yes. But he's on on the brain. And Mrs. Goddard and Mrs. Bates come over. And before Emma leaves for the party, she gives them big slices of cake and full glasses of wines because she's not sure how much of their dinner they were allowed to eat around Mr. Woodhouse. So much gruel. Yeah. She was like, I ordered them a hearty meal, but I think they were probably only allowed to eat the side dishes. <laughs> like, whatever. Yep. So her carriage takes her and it follows another carriage to the Coles. And when they arrive, she finds that the carriage in front of her was Mr. Knightley's carriage. And he doesn't usually take a carriage. So she like pokes fun at him being like, it's so nice to see you traveling like a gentleman for once. And he's like, ha ha ha. Yes. How does he normally get around? He walks. She she makes a whole big point about he doesn't keep horses and he doesn't use his income that way. And he's young and athletic and generally likes to walk places. So Mr. Knightley's a huge walker a la Lizzie Bennett. I was going to say, like, it's proper when he walks places, but it's not proper when Lizzie Bennett walks places. Patriarchy. Right. Yes. Of course. Yes. Mr. Knightley has the complete capacity to walk. You also get the sense that Lizzie trekked through a bunch of mud to get places. Right. Where... She didn't take the path. Yeah. Mr. Knightley's just walking down a whole lot of paths. But he's, you know, he's a svelte man, apparently. He's just, like, very fit because he goes to the woodhouses, like, every day. And how many miles is that? Um, he's pretty near the Woodhouses. It's within like two miles, I think. And like he's very close to Randall's as well. Those three houses are very close to each other, but he walks everywhere. Yeah. Okay. So I was wondering about that. Yeah. He's like a he's like a born and raised New Yorker. Right. If you're friends with anyone who is born and raised in New York City, they will straight up be like, oh, we're in Harlem. Let's just like walk down to Chelsea. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you're like, what? Yeah. So he jokes back and he's like, oh, I'm really glad you saw me now arriving in my carriage because if you had seen me in the drawing room later, you wouldn't have thought I was any more of a gentleman than normal. And she's like, no, when you walk places, I can always tell because you have this like air about you of like trying to make sure that it seems like you arrived there the same way as everyone else. And right now you're not trying to impress anyone. So you definitely took a carriage here and they go in. And Emma gets a very warm welcome and Frank immediately comes straight over to her and makes it very clear that she is his object and he sits next to her at dinner. And since the party is so large at dinner, there's a lot of conversations going on and she's able to focus on her conversation with Frank. But then she hears Mrs. Cole telling something about Jane Fairfax. So she like tunes into that side of the table. Apparently, Jane Fairfax received a surprise pianoforte and she doesn't know who it's from. And everyone is like, well, it must be from Colonel Campbell. Now, I, when I read this the first time, I thought they were talking about Mr. Dixon the whole time. So I didn't think there was any confusion here. But my first thought is that this is from Mr. Dixon, not Mr. Campbell. That's just a thought. I'm going to uh, neither confirm nor deny that, obviously. But I also want to like point out something that I think is really interesting here. Pianoforte. Tiny apartment. Tiny apartment. Tiny apartment. Pianoforte. Someone who hasn't seen... The tiny apartment? Maybe. But also, I, I am thinking a bit more from the perspective of, like, people around Jane Fairfax giving her little trinkets of a life that she's not living at home. Yeah. And on the other side of that, inconveniences. It's a surprise, so she couldn't plan for this. And now there's, like, a huge pianoforte in their tiny apartment. Yep. So it's, like, not the best thing. But... Mrs. Cole says she is so thrilled that Jane has now gotten a piano because Jane plays so well. And it's a shame when there are instruments that go to waste in great houses, like, for example, Emma's or in her own house. She has a piano forte, but she can't play and her kids are so young. So she's like, and Jane has nothing. So now I'm so glad that she's going to get to play a piano forte. I will say probably Emma's piano does not go to waste. Emma does play the piano forte. She's just not good like Jane is. Sure. She's fine. Yeah, she doesn't practice enough. She doesn't practice enough. She's not naturally as musically gifted, but mm -hmm. she's like passable. She can play Wonderwall. Anyway, here's Wonderwall. <laughs> so Miss 
Cole then turns to Emma and is like, you'll have to play for us later. And Emma's like, okay, all right, sure. So then Emma turns to Frank and they start discussing the gift. And Emma is wondering why, if it's from the colonel, it had taken him so long to send her a pianoforte because he knows that she doesn't have one. Or why he didn't just give her his own pianoforte because it's probably sitting in London with no one using it right now. And Frank is thinking of rational excuses for all of these, but he can tell that Emma suspects something and he wants the hot goss. So she then says, well, what do you think of the idea that Mrs. Dixon sent the instrument? And Frank is like, oh, yes, that makes a lot more sense. Like her friend sent her a piano. Yes. And I, I want to say like here, like we give him a lot of crap, but she's definitely picking up something here. Oh, 100 percent. I agree with her. Like, like for now. her logic is airtight on the Colonel Campbell thing. Yes, it, it wouldn't make no sense for him to send a surprise pianoforte to his who he's raised as his daughter, his ward. Yeah. When Frank agrees, Emma then says, well, then we must also suspect Mr. Dixon in our suspicions. And Frank then agrees, yes, it's probably a joint present from the Dixons. Then Emma explains her suspicions about everything. She explains that she thinks Mr. Dixon is in love with Jane. Maybe Jane is a little in love with Mr. Dixon. And that's why she didn't go to Ireland. Um, And she says that Jane's excuse of, quote, taking her native air makes no sense because it's the middle of winter. So it's not like she's out, like, enjoying the summer air. She's, like, in by the fire, like, shivering. So another airtight logic from Emma. Yeah. Frank agrees, and he says it was pretty obvious back in Weymouth that Mr. Dixon preferred Jane's playing to Mrs. Dixon's playing. And Emma then adds, you know, and he saved her life on the party boat, Uh, which it was a boat. I know we had some contention about whether it was a boat or just like by the water. It said she was in a vessel. So she fell overboard. I was picturing like a yacht in this scene, which obviously it's not, but it was so funny. I was picturing, I was picturing like on like warm holidays where people have a little motorboat and they like go out on the water and they're like drinking mimosas. I was picturing one of those, but this is like, I don't know what it is, but not that. (laughs) Something probably much simpler. Yes. So basically she fell, he caught her and Frank is like, oh, well, like I saw that happen. I was there and it didn't seem romantic to me, but I'm simple. So I probably missed something. (laughs) And then Emma says that this gift of the pianoforte confirms all of her suspicions of the romance and Frank says if the Dixons deny that it was them then they can assume that it was from the Campbells and Emma's like definitely not because Jane would have guessed it if it was from the Campbells like first thing she would have been like oh this must be from the Campbells but she didn't know who it was from and Frank says he's perfectly convinced and she insults him to think that he's not and he she, he was convinced of everything, every step of the way that she had said. She, he was like, first, I thought it was from the Campbells. But then you said it was from Mrs. Dixon. I said, yeah. Then you said it was from Mr. Dixon. I was like, definitely. I will say this about Frank Churchill. He is such a good yes man. Like, he's a he's like yes ending the whole situation with Emma. They are like, they are like two little gremlins, like feeding <laughs> off each other's energy here. Yes. And his energy is just like hyping her up. Like I said, he has that specific charisma, the charm of making other people feel charming. Mm -hmm. And you could feel it with Emma right now. Totally. After dinner, the ladies go to the drawing room and they are soon joined by the less important ladies who weren't invited to dinner, which would be Miss Bates, Miss Fairfax and Miss Smith. Emma sees Harriet come in and she is struck by how light and cheerful Harriet seems. And she's like, nobody would ever be able to tell that she was crying for the last two weeks. And she's very proud of her for that. Emma suspects that Jane Fairfax would gladly change places with Harriet and have been, have loved Elton unrequitedly than to have been loved by her best friend's husband. I will also say this comes in the context of Emma basically being like, Harriet looks so cute. She looks so pretty. Oh, my God. You can't even tell she's upset. She's having a ball. And then she looks at Jane and she's like, oh, God, Jane looks so morose right now. (laughs) Like, my God, she is not keeping it together at all like Harriet. And then she's like, well, if I think about it, Harriet's not going through the shit that Jane's going through right now. So, like, probably if if Emma's right about everything. (laughs) Yeah. She's like, Jane could use a little unrequited love. (laughs) So... Emma doesn't want to, like, go up to talk to Jane, but she literally is like, the party is big enough that I don't have to talk to Jane. Yeah, so she's like, I will take advantage of that and I will stay over here. Except for the fact that she's literally standing, like, near enough to hear everything. Yeah, so she's like, Jane is standing right there and Emma just, like, turns away. 
but still listens. I'm picturing Emma like leaning in and being like, hmm, hmm, <laughs> yeah. Um, so she hears what they're saying and she hears people asking Jane about the pianoforte and she watches Jane blush as she assumes with guilt and say, oh, my excellent friend, Colonel Campbell. Mrs. Weston is then asking her all these questions about the piano. She's like, oh, how's the tone? How's the pedal? She doesn't notice that Jane clearly doesn't want to talk about it. The men then come in and Frank comes straight to Emma, which Emma again thinks that it makes it very clear to everyone that he is trying to get with her. And she then introduces him to Harriet. He later tells Emma how lovely Harriet is. And Harriet later tells Emma that he looks kind of like Mr. Elton. Which is spectacular. Emma is like... And turns away. She does not even say She's anything. She's like, I'm not even going to dignify that with a response. It's like when you get a really intense text from somebody and you're just like, I don't know how to respond to this, so I simply will not. Yeah, it's like turns the phone back over. <laughs> it's like, oh, I am at work. I'm going to just not. <laughs> exactly. Frank tells Emma that he found the men in the dinner uh, sensible and gentlemanlike, and he speaks very highly of all the families of Highbury in general, which makes Emma think that maybe she is too harsh on them usually. She's like, maybe I hate this place too much. Um, he then tells her that he gets very little society at Enscombe and that Mrs. Churchill very rarely wants to go out, and it is with great difficulty at times that he is able to get away. He really um, makes it clear that it's only at times that he's able to get away. He later says that uh, he has more sway over his aunt than his uncle does. And with time, he can persuade her to do anything. But his influence fails in certain situations, one of which being when he wants to go abroad. This is another piece of the puzzle, which we have talked about a little bit. And I think is like, it's also going to be in the study questions that we'll talk about it. But this is another window into Frank Churchill's experience with the Churchill family and what they're like. Because we have all these experiences of Frank Churchill being, you know, party boy extraordinaire, but you kind of see him get psyched to be interacting in Highbury. And it tells you a little bit about maybe the limitations he feels at home in mm-hmm. his company. Mm-hmm. I think so. I think it does. I can't, I still can't tell if I believe him or not. Becca's doing her great stone face impression. I do a great stone face impression. It's part of the magic of this podcast. (laughs) So Emma guesses that the other time when he's unable to sway his aunt is when he wants to show honorable behavior towards his father. He then says that he's had a terrible realization. He has already been in Highbury a week and he is leaving in another week. Emma says, maybe now you'll regret spending a whole day in London getting your hair cut. And he's like, no. I don't regret it. I don't want to be seen by my friends unless I look good, which I guess fair. Yep. Emma then turns and talks to Mr. Cole for a bit, and then she turns back to Frank and sees that he is staring at Jane. And she's like, what's wrong? And he says, Jane has done her hair really weird. And he says that the style is outré, which the closest uh, definition that I could find was that in French, it means outraged. So potentially outrageous, like her hair is outrageous. And he is like, what is that style? I have to go ask her about it. Um, Outre also in French means like unusual or startling. That's what I, yeah, something like that. So so she's done her hair in some odd way. And he says like, he's like those curls. Like I'm picturing kind of like the donut hairstyle of Fanny Dashwood. Uh, Yes, the infamous donut Fanny hair. Yeah. Or bagels, actually, I think it was. Or little assholes. Yeah. It could be little assholes. All right. (laughs) Terrible image. (laughs) So he goes to ask Jane if it's an Irish fashion. And he goes and he stands right in between Emma and Jane so she can't see Jane's reaction to his question. And I think he did this on purpose. But Emma thinks that he did this improvidently, which means thoughtlessly. But I think that he's purposefully blocking Jane so that Emma can't see because he's not actually asking her about her hair and I don't know what he's asking her about. That's a great idea. Thank you. I also wrote here that I can't tell if he's being mean about her hair or if he has a crush on her. So there's that. Mrs. Weston then swoops in to Emma and says she has been forming plans just like Emma and she's like, Emma, I have the hot goss. Do you know how Miss Bates and Jane got to this party? And Emma's like, I assume they walked. 
And Miss Miss Weston is like, yeah, I thought so too. But I just went to go offer Miss Bates my carriage for the ride home. And she said there was no need because she took Mr. Knightley's carriage here and they're going to be taking Mr. Knightley's carriage back. We have a fact Emma did not know. (laughs) Yeah. And Emma's like, what? And she feels fairly certain that the only reason Mr. Knightley took his carriage at all was so that he could offer it to Miss Bates and Miss Fairfax. Emma considers this and she agrees. She says, Mr. Knightley is very good natured, useful, considerate, benevolent. He's not gallant, but he is humane. And this is something he would do. Mrs. Weston laughs and says Emma is giving him more credit for, quote, disinterested benevolence than she would because she thinks he did this because he likes Jane Fairfax. We need a record scratch here. (laughs) Give it to me, girl. Well, okay. so my first thought is no way. But as the chapter progressed, I started to think about it. And I, I was like, wait, maybe why else? Would he want Emma and Jane to be friends? You keep asking me why he wants Emma and Jane to be friends. And he is like best friends with Emma. So of course he's going to want her to approve of the person that he likes. I think there is a real possibility that, you know, he favors Jane and he might like her. He's known her for a long time. I don't know. There's lots of thoughts and there's going to be more as it goes along. But my first thought was no way. And then the more I thought about it, I was like, actually, this could work. So that's where I stand now. Okay. So Emma immediately is like, no, absolutely not. Mr. Knightley cannot get married. I cannot consent to that. Then little Henry won't inherit Donwell. Um, Henry being Isabella's son. That's correct. So Emma has it in her mind that Mr. Knightley just was never going to get married. Mrs. Weston is like, well, it's not that I want the match, but if Knightley really loves Jane, would you really object to it? And all for a six-year-old boy. And Emma's like, yes, yes, I would. And Jane Fairfax, too, of all women, is how she ends it. Now, I think she doesn't want him to get married. Like, she won't marry him, but she doesn't want him to get married to anyone else. And she especially doesn't want him to get married to Jane Fairfax. I mean, she doesn't want Jane Fairfax in any portion of her life. Right. She's, like, thinking, like, oh, my God, if he gets married to Jane Fairfax, then I'm going to have to see her all the time. And, like, she's going to be telling me what to do. No way. But the way that I'm seeing this or the way that it comes off to me is, again, very high school. This is all very high school petty drama of like, he's her best friend and like everyone wants them to get together. At least I do. (laughs) Um, (laughs) (laughs) Everyone in the 21st century really wants them to get together. Yes. They're best friends. Maybe he liked her at some point. I don't know. I mean, he's known her since she was in diapers, so maybe not. But like, anyway, they're best friends. It makes sense. For Emma and Knightley to be together, but they are just friends and they always will just be friends, but he cannot have anyone else either. He has to stay just her as just her friend. No one else's. And definitely no one else's husband. Especially not Jane Fairfax. Especially not Jane Fairfax. The bane of Emma's entire existence. Yeah. So this is all, this is all <laughs> a lot. So Mrs. Weston says, well, Knightley has always liked Jane. And Emma's like, but the match would be so imprudent. And Mrs. Weston says, I am not speaking of its prudence. I am speaking of its probability, which then I wrote prudence and probability, the alternate title of this book. I mean, Jane Austen apparently just got sick of doing the the titles. What, what are they? The uh, alliterative. The, the alliterative titles. Yes. <laughs> but she could have had one right there. So Emma says, well, I don't think it's probable at all. He would have, he just like ordered his carriage out of goodwill and Mrs. Weston, you should have refrained from matchmaking. I mean, Emma. Are you one to talk? Pot. Kettle. (laughs) Come on. Exactly. (laughs) She's Uh, sitting here being like, I am picking up vibes that Jane was in love with her best friend's husband. And and then Mrs. Weston's like, oh, I could kind of see her and Knightley getting together. And Emma's like, how dare you interfere with other people's business? (laughs) She's like, you're talking about things you don't know anything about. (laughs) And then she says Mr. Knightley doesn't want to get married, that he is happy by himself with his farm and his sheep and his library. Someone's projecting. But also that does sound spectacular. It sounds great. But Emma (laughs) thinks that just because she's sitting alone in her house in her solitary grandeur that everyone else who has that sort of situation wants to be alone too. And Knightley just might not want to be alone. And Emma thinks that she knows him so well. But they don't talk about this sort of thing. 
They haven't really. They haven't. They don't. I mean, I feel like they don't talk about love. At least not yet. We'll see. Yes, there hasn't been much to talk about. So Mrs. Weston goes, but Emma, if he really loves Jane. And Emma's like, he doesn't love Jane. (laughs) She's fighting the hypothetical here. On the hypothetical, Emma, that he does. Impossible. He doesn't. So we're not dealing with it. We're not dealing with this. (laughs) She says she's sure that he would do any good for Jane and her family that he could. And Mrs. Weston is like, well, the most good he could do would be to give Jane a respectable home. And I was like, yeah, but that would be shameful and degrading to himself. And and then Miss Bates would be around all the time. And then she starts mocking Miss Bates and she's like pretending that she's Miss Bates around the house. Like, oh, my God, thank you so much for marrying Jane. And Miss Bates is in the room and she's just like making fun of her. Oh, yeah. I think that Frank brings out the worst in Emma. Um, he's like the friend, he's like the Willoughby that like, not saying that Frank is like Willoughby because I don't think he's nearly as bad. Like he seems like a nice guy overall so far. I don't know. But the way that Marianne was with Willoughby where she would like talk shit about people. I feel like that's how Emma is with Frank. So she's fallen into that a little bit here because she normally like she, she talks shit about people in the comfort of her own home. But like, it seems unusual that she's talking shit about someone who's right there. Mrs. Weston is like, Mr. Knightley wouldn't be so bothered by Miss Bates because he doesn't really get <laughs> irritated. This is the thing. Mrs. Weston, the idea that Mr. Knightley does not get irritated by things is the most ridiculous thing anyone has said in a Jane Austen novel. It's so silly. Here's the thing. Mr. Knightley has a lot of patience for Miss Bates because I think he has a lot of compassion for her. But to say Mr. Knightley does not get irritated by anything is incorrect. Yeah, he's not the most patient man. He actually is patient, but not for everything. Like he's, he's patient, but he's not unirritable. As in, he will let you prattle on, and then he'll be like, anyway, moving on to another, and he will never answer you. Exactly. Like, if you look at how he is with Mr. Woodhouse, mm-hmm. he's clearly better than his brother at that, and so you might get the sense that he's not easily irritated, but then you see him interact with Emma for five minutes, and you're like, how can you say he's not easily irritated? Well, I wonder if he is normally not very easily irritated, but Emma pushes his buttons. Something to think about. Mm-hmm. So she says that and she says, anyway, it's not about whether it would be a bad connection for him, but whether he wants it. And Mrs. Weston thinks he wants it. Now, I had trouble with this because I was like, well, it would be, you know, a step down for him. And at first I was like, he wouldn't marry down like that. But then I was thinking he said Mr. Elton wouldn't marry down, but he never said anything about his own preferences. Well, Mr. Knightley comes from a little bit higher up than Mr. Elton. Mm hmm. Mr. Elton is still trying to climb. And Knightley has his own estate. It's almost like um, Darcy. Mm -hmm. Having an imprudent match for Darcy is a different thing than having an imprudent match for Bingley, which is how you get to the cognitive dissonance of Darcy being like, don't marry Jane Bennett, and then proposing to Elizabeth Bennett. (laughs) I hadn't thought of that before, but yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's, it's still absolutely batshit that it happens as it does, but he does say to Bingley, you can't marry Jane Bennett. And then he goes and is like, Elizabeth Bennett, I cannot be without you. Like, right. That makes a lot of sense because he's got more money and more status than Bingley to start with. So he doesn't need to do well for himself. Exactly. You can get to a point in society where you can marry who you want to. But then there's also like there's doing a prudent match. Hello, economics of dating in Jane Austen. But if you don't need it for your income like Knightley does, then you have the freedom to choose against consolidating more wealth mm-hmm. under you. And you can instead choose to marry someone of a little bit lower stature, like, say, a Jane Fairfax. If, for example, you're into her and you don't want her feet to get cold as she walks to a party. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So this is my theory. This is what, if I were writing this book, this is what I would write. Okay, give it to us. Knightley had a crush on Emma a while ago, but they are too close and... He knows her too well to know and knows that she does not have any inclination to marry at all. So he has moved on and he is like, let me find someone else. He likes Jane Fairfax. He thinks, I like Jane Fairfax. He starts making moves on Jane Fairfax when she moves back home. Now Emma's going to be like, but Knightley never wanted to get married. And Knightley was never going to get married. And we had a friendship pact. And like, we were just going to be best pals forever. And what's he doing? And Knightley's going to be like, well... I don't want to be alone. And I was like, I thought you wanted to be alone. And he's like, no, I just told you that because I was secretly in love with you and I didn't want you to catch on. And I was going to be like, oh, let me sit with that for a minute. And then I was going to be like, fuck. 
I love my best friend. That's my thought. Move over, Jane Austen. <laughs> so that's what would happen if I was writing this book. Anyway, either our listeners are screaming because I just got everything right or they are laughing their heads off because I sound like an idiot. One or the other. Well, I am personally neither confirming nor denying. So. Of course, right. So Mrs. Weston thinks that Knightley might have sent the piano forte. And Emma's like, no, Knightley doesn't do things mysteriously. He would never surprise <laughs> someone like that. <laughs> the idea of Mr. Knightley is like, I love that Emma's just like, no, Knightley doesn't do that. He's <laughs> like, he doesn't know how to be a mysterious romantic. He's just too blunt. But we've talked about this. Knightley is kind of a romantic. Like, I've brought that up twice now. And this is my third time. Knightley might be a romantic. We don't know. He's a secret romantic. Emma doesn't realize she doesn't catch on to the secret. So Mrs. Weston says, well, you know, I've always heard him lamenting that Jane didn't have an instrument. And Emma's like, so he would have told Jane if he was going to buy her one. And Mrs. Weston thinks that maybe he wanted to keep it under wraps for reasons of delicacy. And Emma's like, you're doing the thing you always yell at me for doing. You're meddling where... You shouldn't be meddling. And they continue arguing like this for a while until Mr. Cole asks Emma to play for the room. So subject change. She goes on to play the piano and Frank jumps in and starts singing with her. I love this because apparently he doesn't have a lot of musical talent, but he's just like, oh, I'm in. And he's just like, I'm going to join. He just joins everyone. So he jumps in, he starts singing and it says that it was passable and everyone was like, oh, good job. And he was like, no, no, I can't sing at all. Don't make me sing. Don't make me are you doing Kristen Wiig? Don't let me sing. Don't make me sing. sing. But like you get the sense that Frank is just like a blast to have at a party. He's at a, he, yeah, he's having a good time at the party. And he's like, oh, we're playing the piano now. All right. So he comes and sings with Emma and they do a couple songs. And then Jane sits down to take her place. And Emma's like, yes, Jane can play a lot better than me. So that's fine. Jane and Frank do a little duet. And it appears that they've sung together before at Weymouth. So that's interesting. And Emma's thinking about it for a minute, but then she notices Knightley looking enraptured. So she's like, fuck. She's like, what? why is he so interested? Wait, no, you're not allowed to care about this. You're supposed to be grumbling about Frank Churchill. Yeah, she's like, wait, why are you, what, are you enjoying this? What's happening? Um, and she starts getting stressed because she's like, if he gets married, then it's going to be a disappointment to John and Isabella and to baby Henry. And she's like freaking out. And then Knightley sees her and he comes over. And Emma's like, you know, it was very kind of you to lend your carriage to Miss Bates and Miss Fairfax. And he's like, oh, no, it was nothing. And she takes this as him being humble and not wanting to talk about his own kindness. But, you know, could be him evading the subject. Then she brings up the pianoforte and he's like, surprises are dumb. (laughs) He's like, the Campbell should have known better than to send her a piano like that. Who would just send one out of the blue? That doesn't make sense. It's a small apartment. Yeah, so now he's angry. (laughs) And Emma's like, thank God. This makes Emma feel better. She's like, okay, he didn't send the piano, but it's still possible that he might like her. Because Jane gets to her second song and her voice starts to sound a little hoarse towards the end of it. And Knightley's like, she should stop singing now. Like, she's going to sing herself hoarse. But Frank Churchill is like, another one, another one. Look, this the, the melody is easy on this one. I'll take the hard part. Like, let's do another one. So this makes Mr. Knightley angry. And he's like, Miss Bates, are you going to allow your niece to sing herself hoarse like this? And Mrs. Bates is like, absolutely not. She's like, no way, no way, no way. Jane's health? Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Um, and Knightley's like grumbling about how Frank is like such a douchebag for making her sing her she's he's like she's gonna hurt herself inconsiderate fucking party boy didn't know shit <laughs> yeah exactly so the singing stops and we move on to the dancing portion of the evening emma and frank go to dance together and while they're dancing night emma looks around looking for nightly because he doesn't usually dance so if he's dancing and if he's dancing with jane specifically that's a telltale sign that he likes her because normally he would not be spotted on the dance floor. Luckily, he is just talking to Mrs. Cole and Emma keeps dancing, turns around a couple times. He turns, She turns around again, still talking to Mrs. Cole and she thinks, okay, we're safe. I'm going to enjoy my dance with Mr. Frank Churchill. Everything's good. They do two dances and then the party starts breaking up and Frank turns to Emma and he's like, I'm glad the party's ending now because otherwise I would have had to dance with Jane Fairfax. Dun, dun, dun. And that would have sucked. And that would have sucked. 
And that's the end of that chapter. Which brings us to Becca's study questions. Uh, let's start briefly with Emma's monologue on the coals. What do we learn a little bit there? Where she's like talking about how they are new money and and coming up. Well, we see a little, we, we get another new window into a society here. We have Emma talking from the top, basically saying it's rude of the Coles to invite her to a party because she's above them. She should only invite them to parties. And then as she's talking about it, she's like, they're ridiculous human beings. They don't know what they're talking about. Like, they're, they're new money. This is gross. Then she finds out she didn't get an invitation from them. And she's like, oh, my God, am I this pathetic, like, loner person who's like at the top obviously it's they can't invite me but like also like do they just think that my dad and I never leave the house and then when the invitation comes later it's so persuadable and they're really such great people and ooh they did this nice thing for my father so like he could come as well and you see the Cole's class change as Emma's perception changes because again she's our unreliable narrator Mm -hmm. and you have her talking about People, because like again, she she's decided Harriet's high class because she likes her, right? And you see her kind of fluctuate on the coals depending on her feeling about them as people. Yeah, I think that it, it kind of shows that at least for Emma, people's status is determined a little bit by how much she likes them, and it makes me think that maybe if she gets to know someone better, she could you know, place them higher in society than they are, like Harriet and like the Coles, who are actually high up enough that, like, she was just being classist because they were new money. But, like, it makes me think that maybe she could have her mind changed about the Martins as well. Maybe. It's a good insight. It's also, I think, a nice little tweak from Jane Austen. I haven't brought this up in a bit, but obviously throughout all these books, we have our class commentary from Jane Austen. And I think this is a nice little, like, roast from Jane Austen of the upper classes and how they perceive the people beneath them. Because you see her go from, like, oh, these people, I'm not interacting with them. They're beneath me, to, Oh, my God, they don't want to interact with me. Do they understand how much they're beneath me? But then all my friends are going. Right. It's like they deigned to invite all of my friends. So, like, why not me? And then when she does get the invitation and it's so sweet and they tried so hard, she's like, oh, well, they're actually really nice people. And like this could be a really fun societal event for me. And, you know, they they really persuaded me from being so nice to my father. And mm-hmm. you kind of see their, their their class fluctuate as she's justifying wanting to go to their party. Well, right. And she also really enjoys being sucked up to. She so does. their invitation was perfect for her. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. It shows that a lot of things are kind of arbitrary and subjective. And I think you can also see Jane Austen thinks a lot of these things are a bit arbitrary herself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. We learn more about the Churchills in this chapter. And and Scombe and Frank, what does it tell us about our story? Well, I still don't know if I believe Frank on everything that he's saying, but it does. It tells us that we think the Churchills are one way maybe from before like we think that they're you know they're high class they're uppity they I just associate that with a lot of society but apparently they're also kind of insular and don't go out much and don't like to see people because they the top is lonely like we've said with Emma um so we've learned that they don't go out and don't let Frank go out very much at least we think they don't they're they're snotty in a more rigid way than Emma is Mm -hmm. because Frank says they have people over, but they only invite people who are really high status. And therefore, those people live far away because, like, they're not, they have to get their friends to come to them from far away because there's nobody high up enough near them to be friends with. And they don't travel to their friends. And they don't travel. And you also learn Mrs. Churchill's not in perfect, perfect health either. So you have that aspect of it, which I do want to, like, lightly draw a comparison here between Emma and Frank mm-hmm. because. You just pointed it out. They're both lonely at the top and they both have parents who don't favor going out places. Mm -hmm. That's part of how they interact with the high society around them. Mm -hmm. And I would also point out you are correct to be, you know, questioning whether or not Frank is being honest about these things because, you know, that's part of the intrigue of Frank Churchill. You never know how genuine he's being in any given moment. Mm -hmm. But I think you learn a little bit about um, 
the insular Enchcomb area being similar in some ways to the insular Hartfield area. Yeah. And so that does make Frank and Emma in a little bit of a way kindred. Yeah. It makes sense that that she has like wanted to meet him so badly and like feels connected to him. Yeah, I think it it um gives her cuz Emma sort of interacts in this way where she we we learn that like she hasn't traveled much and everything. And so Highbury is her little fiefdom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but and Frank has traveled a lot more than Emma, but he comes at it from the angle of similarly having a parent making him come home. Right. So something to think about. Also, I would note that he says he persuades his mother on a lot, but not on everything. Mm-hmm. I only encourage you to speculate about what um, he's unable to persuade her on generally. You don't have to speculate openly now. I'm just saying hold that kernel in your brain. Okay. I'll think about it. Okay. Yeah. All right. What do we think of the dynamic between Frank and Emma? We're talking love, lust. Not hype. lust yet. What was the third option? Hypesmanship. <laughs> <laughs> right now they are giving off bros. Um, not to the extent of Emma and Knightley, who are our best bros. Um, but they're giving off bros, they're giving off sexual tension, they're giving off, you've only met one person in the group, but you feel like you don't actually need to meet anyone else in the group, so they just, like, only talk to each other. They definitely have chemistry. Are you team, which, would one did we decide, Woodhill? Woodhill? Uh, Church House? Church House. Um, I'm not anti-Church House. But I'm more shipping Emma Knightley recently. Have we given a name to them? Um, Nighthouse? Nighthouse. Oh, that sounds fucking Church cool. Church House and Nighthouse. I like it. Church House versus Nighthouse. Okay. Yeah, and, and I don't think that the, sh- the book has hinted at all at Nighthouse being a thing, but just because they're best friends and I'm pro, like, best friends to lovers tropes, tropes yes. I'm shipping it. Um, but I'm, I'm not anti-Church House yet. Okay. What do you make of the Frank and Jane tension? What does he know about her? I have no idea. Something happened. I don't know what he went to talk to her about when he wanted to talk to her about her donut hair. <laughs> her asshole hair. Yeah, I, I don't know what, what that was about. Um, I don't think he was asking her about her hair. I don't know what happened between them, but something did because they know each other. They've sang, sung together. They He seems to like hate her for some reason but not enough to not talk to her at all. I don't know. He must know something. He's going along with everything that Emma said about Mr. Dixon, which makes me think that that's not it because he would have said like, oh yeah, that's true. I've noticed it. Like he said, I've noticed that he's, you know, likes her playing and he saved her life that one time, but it was like not a big deal. But there's something else that he knows. Okay. Who sent the pianoforte? Mr. Dixon. Mr. Dixon sent the pianoforte. <gasps> Unless. This just occurred to me. <laughs> this just in. Because there are so many potential pairings right now, and the timing works out, Frank went to London the day before the pianoforte arrived, or on the day that the pianoforte arrived. That's weird. So I wonder if Frank sent the pianoforte. And, and nobody's hinted at that. But it's possible that Frank, you know what? I'm now team Frank sent the pianoforte and is starting drama. Okay. And um, last question. What do you think of this Knightly Jane idea? Are you team Jightly? I actually am team Jightly. Uh, or Night Facts. Night Facts. Ooh, okay. Ooh. Um, or Fairly. I think Night Facts. Night Facts has to win. Um, I actually, as much as I like, you know, am shipping the best friends to lovers, whatever, Yes, I am team Night Facts because I think that Knightley deserves happiness and I think that Jane deserves happiness. And I actually think that they would probably make a really good match because she's kind of sweet and quiet and he's kind of aloof and um, like not aloof, but like he's kind of like a grumpy hermit. He, yeah, he does his own yeah. thing. He does his own thing. So like, <laughs> they could stay home and she could read her books and he could read his books and she could play the piano and he can like drink his coffee and like I could see a good partnership between them. So I'm team Night Facts. Okay. Um, and... I guess that brings us to our standbys. What do you think of Emma? <laughs> what do I think of Emma? Um, she is projecting 
a little bit. She really thinks that everyone's brains work the way that hers works. Okay. Uh, Funniest quote. You picked an iconic one this time. Thank you so much. So this is after Emma introduces Frank Churchill to Harriet. And Harriet is telling her what she thinks. Only to be sure it was paying him too great a compliment. But she did think there were some looks a little like Mr. Elton. Emma restrained her indignation and only turned from her in silence. Incredible. (laughs) Uh, Questions moving forward. Does Knightley like Jane? Did Frank send the piano? Does Frank like Jane? Does Frank know something about Jane? Who sent the piano forte? This is a lot of cliffhangers on this one. Oh, yeah. There's a lot to discuss. Who wins the chapters? Mrs. Weston. Ooh, great pick. Yeah, she really uh, threw me for a loop on this one. I gasped when she told me (laughs) that she thinks that Knightley likes Jane. I was like, I was not expecting that. So Mrs. Weston for bringing the drama. Yes. Yes, I'll give an honorable mention to Jane for getting a piano forte. Totally. Good for her. Yeah, good for her. She has a secret admirer. Lucille Bluth holding a cupcake. Good for her. (laughs) Yeah. All right, uh, that concludes this episode of Pot and Prejudice. So for next week, we're going to read chapters 9 and 10 of volume the second, or if you don't have volumes in your book, 27 and 28. All right, uh, so Molly, are feeling good about this whole thing? Yeah, the drama seems to be heating up, yes. so I'm excited. Then until next time, stay proper. And send someone a secret piano forte. A very secret piano forte. Surprise them. Yes. <laughs> Pod and Prejudice is edited by Molly Burdick and audio produced by Graham Cook. Our show art is designed by Torrance Brown. Our show is transcribed by Speech Docs Podcast Transcription. For transcripts and to learn more about our team, check out our website at podandprejudice.com. To keep up with the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pod and Prejudice. If you love what you hear, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash podandprejudice to see how you can support us or just drop us a rating and a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.